0: News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simmy. Okay, this may seem a little bit unusual, but this morning we're going to chat about Edgar Allan Poe. Yes, the author. I mean, he wrote stories that we are still telling in different versions all these years later. The Raven, the Telltale Heart, the Fall of the House of Usher, the Black Cat. Oh, the Purloined Letter. That is a classic story. His death, though, more than 170 years ago has always been shrouded in mystery, much like what he used to write. He was found outside an electoral polling station in Baltimore, found delirious. He'd been missing for a week and he died before anyone could really found out find out how he had gotten into that position. He was only 40 years old at the time. So it is a mystery that has continued to fascinate people all these years later. And now there is even a new theory about what might have happened to him. To learn more about that, we're joined by Mark Devitzak, who's an author of A Mystery of Mysteries, The Death and Life of Edgar Allan Poe. Mark, thanks for being here. Well, Thanks for having me. Why does Poe fascinate you so much?
2: Well, I've carried Poe through my throughout my entire life. And I think he fascinates all of us. <laughs> the, the author of these, as you say, these wonderful stories that we all get when uh, we are in school and then throughout uh, upper education, all the way through university and college. How can you not be fascinated with somebody who who produced the telltale heart and the cask of Amontillado and the, the mask of the red death? So, and then you have this 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 mystery of his death the, the the fellow who created the modern detective story and the modern horror story dies under circumstances which are reflective of his two greatest literary achievements he dies under circumstances which would not be out of place in one of his own horror stories and he leaves us with a mystery not just a mystery but a double-barreled mystery uh we have the mystery of what killed him and then we have the mystery of the missing days that's the greatest literary stage exit of all time.
0: <laughs> it really is. I
2: under. It's almost as if a PR agent stepped in and said, "You know, Eddie, the best thing for you would be to die at forty under circumstances which are just like one of your stories."
0: That is so and true. How, how did you go about true. even? Yes. How did you go about even trying to look into this or solve this? And we're talking 170 years ago.
2: That's right. And and and, to, and and in some cases, it can never definitively be solved. I, I've been very clear about that right from the start. There was no autopsy. And even if there had been one, it would have been worthless because the, 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 the era of the modern autopsy did not come into being until the Civil War. That's when we got very good at cutting up bodies. So there was no autopsy, no death certificate. There's no surviving soft tissue that could be subjected to modern forensics, Um, the witnesses that do exist to Poe's death are unreliable or contradictory. In fact, some of them contradict themselves, most notably the attending physician who left behind three accounts of Poe's death, each one wildly different. He even goes so far as to change the time of death in Poe's last words. So you do have an element of this to say, you know, uh, you you, you can't definitively prove this one way or the other. But I think you can come up with a a compelling theory as to how he died. And you approach it as a detective. You have you treat every symptom. And by the way, we're up to about 26 theories as to how Poe died. And you treat each one as a suspect. And you see who do you always have back in the room as your person of interest? Who are your major accomplices in all of this? And then you do your, your groundwork like a detective. So I talk to medical historians, forensic pathologists, forensic archaeologists, an FBI agent, a detective, uh, post-scholars, and you, you, you put each theory to the test. And along the way in this book, I, I, I somewhat um, disprove some of the existing theories, or, or at least say it's unlikely he died of this, this, or this and say, this is the one that uh, I, I isolate as the prime suspect in all of this.
0: Okay, what is the one that you identified as the prime suspect?
2: Well, it's kind of out there. I, I, I you know, I don't want to ruin the book for people who are going to read it, but it's been written. I, I, I believe that he was surrounded his entire life by tuberculosis. And I believe tuberculosis is always in the room. It always seems to be there. And certainly, the, uh, the, the what we know of how he died does fit not only tuberculosis, but specifically tuberculosis meningitis. Um, so, if I if I had to say, uh, that would be that would be my theory. And then I would say the primary accomplices are poverty and alcohol, because alcohol is a problem for him, not the problem we usually think it is. Poe was not perpetually drunk; he had long, long periods of sobriety. But he was probably allergic to alcohol. It took very little drink to make Poe roaring drunk. Uh, From college on, the record is clear. He did not savor a drink. He did not sip a drink. He would throw down the first one, and then it seemed like he'd been drinking for hours. And then it took a long time for him to recover from that. It wasn't just a simple hangover for Poe. It took a couple days to get over any bout of drinking. So periodically, alcohol is a problem for him, and it has a devastating effect on his system. Um, But he is not perpetually drunk. Remember, Poe only lived to be 40. And one of the things I love about uh, doing this book is that when people learned I was writing about Edgar Allan Poe, they would say to me in almost a beatific way, oh, I love Edgar Allan Poe. And then they would say, (laughs) and I could almost move my lips with them, I've read everything he's written. And I would always, I wouldn't say it, but I'd always think, No, you haven't. (laughs) Poe's collected works in the early 1900s filled 17 volumes. And very, very little of it is what we think of as spooky stuff. He was a very careful, exacting, versatile writer. He was also athletic. We don't think of Poe as athletic. He had a sense of humor. We don't think of Poe as having a sense of humor. So another reason I wrote the book was to dispel the myths.
0: But let me, though, ask you about one of the more unusual aspects of what you write about in your book, that it might have something to do with an election that was going on at that time when Poe died.
2: That could explain the missing days. Um, Baltimore, there was an election going on, and Baltimore was a rough town. Baltimore's nickname was Mob Town. And even by, if if you had, if any eastern seaboard town that had a harbor would have had a very, very rough neighborhood and, and, you know, don't go to that part of town. So not only did was Baltimore a pretty tough town by those standards, they would riot at the drop of a hat and they took their rioting very seriously. When they rioted, they drive the mayor and the sheriff out of town and they would burn down the houses of, of leading citizens and it would take days to restore order. And during election time, People would get shanghaied and they would be turned into repeat voters. These gangs of political thuds would, would kidnap people and make them vote. They, they were taken from polling place to polling place. And there was an election going on during this time. The, 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 the practice became known as cooping because in between voting, they would be cooped. They would be kept in a coop or a pen or whatever you would want to call it. And so the practice became known as cooping. And Baltimore had refined this to a, to a, a fine art. And uh, it's a very good explanation as for the missing days as what happened to Poe before he died. It does not necessarily tell us how he died, what he died of, because if he was very sick and he was kept under these circumstances where it was cold, it was a very cold, wet, chilly October when Poe got stranded there, if uh, he was kept under those conditions in that kind of weather, it could have seriously undermined his health. So right. it's a very good explanation. Problem is we don't have any witnesses. Nobody's right. ever stepped forward to say, yeah, I saw that.
0: But as you point out, though, there's something about his death that has uh, all these years later, and we're talking about an author from the eighteen, you thirties know, and 40s um, who is still so popular today, you could say that maybe his death has helped keep that popularity around.
2: That's why I reversed the title is the death and life. I reversed, first off, it, it was, with most biographies, you start where you're supposed to start, when somebody is right. born. With Poe, it almost seems to be reversed. We always seem to start with his death. We always seem to start the discussion with his death. So that's one reason I reversed that title. But the other reason is Poe's going to escape the grave. Poe is going to emerge from the grave as the most popular American writer in the world, not just in his own country, but in the world. We market Poe. There are Poe plushies, action figures, tea, tins, socks, ties. There are more marketing and merchandising items devoted to Edgar Allan Poe than any other author in the history of the planet, including Shakespeare. And, uh, and he's read. The thing about it is,
0: we so all true.
2: get the telltale heart, we all get the raven. So we not only recognize Poe, his face, we recognize his stories. And that's not true of any other author.
0: That is so true. Uh, Mark, thanks so much for talking to us this morning. Oh, thanks for having me. I enjoyed it. Uh, Good luck with the book. Mark Davidsiak is the author of A Mystery of Mysteries, The Death and Life of Edgar Allan Poe. And Mark, by the way, is the author or editor of about 25 books. He's also an internationally recognized Mark Twain scholar who's written five books about Mark Twain, but this time he turns his attention to Edgar Allan Poe. I can't wait to check this out. This is Mornings with Simi. It would be great to be able to win some money, right? On top of that, it would be even better if you could win some money and know that the money you put into it was going towards a great cost. That's the opportunity we have for you right now, and we want to talk about that. So joining us right now is Sarah Dubois-Phillips, Executive Director of the CKNW Kids Fund, and Joanne Griffiths is with us as well, the Co-Executive Director and Co-Founder of Backpack Buddies. Good morning to both of you. Good
3: morning. Good morning, Good morning Joanne.
0: Good morning. Sarah, I'm going to start with you here. Tell us about this 50-50. I love this idea.
3: Well, you know, um, Joanne and I have actually been working on this for a couple of years because after, um, you know, COVID, it was so intense for our organizations in terms of the need. And then inflation hit. So we wanted to try and think of something that um, was different and, as you say, kind of fun for our supporters. And um, we came up with this 50-50 idea. And... We just think it's, it's a great idea. And I, I also um, want Joanne to talk a little bit about her um, experience with the 50-50 because this actually
0: was her idea. All right, Joanne, so tell me about this.
1: Well, I came up with the idea, like Sarah said, a couple of years ago and decided that it was probably a good idea to partner with another organization that had the same goals as we do, which is, you know, helping vulnerable kids in our province. And CKNW Kids Fund was the first thing that came to my mind. So I got a hold of Sarah and said, hey, Sarah, we need to do this uh, 50-50 and we need to help kids in the province and also give back to people that um, support us by holding a 50-50. So it was an awesome idea. And Sarah came on board. And here we are almost two years later with uh, the jackpot at almost $6,500 already with just one day of ticket
0: sales. Oh, boy. So we're pretty okay. excited about this. No kidding. Because ticket sales go until May the 4th, Sarah. Is that right?
3: That's correct. Yes. Yes. And we'll announce on, on May the 5th, actually, on your show who the big winner will be. What? I didn't know that. That's so great. Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> That's Our news to me.
3: to me. We have a big, lofty goal of of raising, um, you know, 500000 So we're hoping that we can reach our goal. We have, we have six weeks here to do it.
0: Okay. Well, people love a good 50 50, right? Because the money you're putting into it is money that you could potentially also be getting back, but then the money is going to a good cause. So where is this money going to go?
1: So for backpack Uh, buddies, it's going to help with uh, food insecurity for vulnerable kids in British Columbia. There's 160,000 kids that live with food insecurity and Backpack Buddies delivers them a nutritious bag of food on Friday afternoon to take home for the weekend when school programs aren't in um, operation.
0: Joanne, you must have seen a huge need for this growing, especially in the last couple of years.
1: Backpack Buddies went from delivering 1,200 bags a week to now having 60, no, pardon me, um, 5,400 kids on our program oh my every goodness. week now. Yeah.
0: That's amazing. Uh, and I can't believe you guys are able to pull that off, but you obviously need help to do that. And, and so, Sarah, obviously, like for the Kids Fund too, this is hugely important. Have you ever done a 50-50 before?
3: No, we have never done a 50-50 before. And actually, I say, there's a lot of people that have assisted us with this, including the team at CKNW. Um, yeah, it's been a big collaborative effort between sales and marketing and producers. And yeah, no, it's, it's, it's been great. And of course, as they say, Joanne's amazing team as well. So it's it's been it's it's been a big effort.
0: Okay, so I want everybody out there right now to go and get their tickets for this fifty fifty. Sarah, where do they do that?
3: Well, you can visit our website, um, the dot or you can just go to bc 5050com mega fifty fifty com and and purchase tickets. So that's bc 5050com dot com or to Backpack Buddies or um, Kids Fund websites. Okay, and
0: how much are the tickets?
3: One ticket is $5. 20 tickets are $20. 100 tickets are 40 And 300 tickets are $100. Well, that's a deal. That's a really yeah, good deal. deal. I mean, everybody can get in. Backpack. Actually, you know, the most popular one is the the tickets for $100, the 300 tickets, those those are the most popular, which which we find interesting. So well, that's great.
0: No kidding. Can't get 300 tickets for $100 anywhere. So that's a great deal. Listen, <laughs> yeah. congratulations yeah. to both of you. Uh, I love this idea. And we're going to push it hard here on the show. And, and hopefully we'll talk to you in a couple of weeks uh, in, on May 4th when we can draw that name great thanks so much to me thank joanne. you for having us thanks sarah thank you thank joanne you. go and check it out you can go to cknwkidsfund.com but it is the bc kids mega 50 50 you can help out backpack buddies you can help out the cknw kids Fund, and you could potentially win two hundred fifty thousand dollars with this 50 50 draw This is Mornings with Simi. Finance Minister Krista Phelan is set to unveil the 2023 budget that will happen later this afternoon in the House of Commons. And, of course, we will have complete coverage for you. There is the potential, of course, for turbulent economic times ahead of us. So how is the government going to tackle this? Well, joining us for a bit of a preview now from Ottawa is Mackenzie Gray, our Global National Correspondent in Ottawa. Good morning, Mackenzie. Good morning. So what do we know right now about what this budget might hold for us? Well,
4: we've been working our sources, and we have a few key things that the liberals want to share with us before the budget, the things they really want to put in the window. And the number one thing is they're going to increase the GST tax credit, and that's for low-income earners to get more money from the government to deal with inflation. And that's something we've seen the liberals do already because they don't want to throw general money on the fire to everybody right now because they know that if they hand out more federal dollars to everyone, inflation is going to continue to be a problem. But they do want to help folks who are at the lower end of the income spectrum. So people today can expect, if you are someone who gets a GST tax credit, $236 more for a family of four, it adds up to about 460 bucks more a year to deal with higher inflation. Now, the Liberals are billing this as a grocery rebate, but it's not a Loblaws gift card. You can spend this anywhere you want. Uh, so that's what the Liberals are going to be doing to try and deal with inflation. But they're also going to be trying to kind of compete with the U.S., you a know, Billions and billions and billions of dollars thrown at the door with the Inflation Reduction Act, something we talked a lot about last week when Joe Biden was here. Mm -hmm. There's going to be money for clean tech. There's going to be money for critical minerals. Two things that the federal government is spending a lot of political capital on right now, too. So those are some of the key things there. And, of course, there's another big one, the RESP for folks who've got kids going to university. Right now, and I didn't know this before, you could only take out $5,000 to pay for your kid's education. They're sending that up to eight, but even eight, I don't think, is enough to cover a year's no. worth of tuition. So it is not. <laughs> that might need to go up a little more later, too.
0: Yeah, I could tell you that for a fact. That is not actually enough for that. Uh, okay, so you've got that. What about the health care money?
4: Yeah, that's going to be interesting to see how this is all spent because we know that the money has been agreed to with the provinces, but this is where the rubber hits the financial road for the federal government because in the budget, we'll get to see what the assumptions are going forward, but also how much money is going out the door at different times. And when you sign these long-term agreements, you know, Justin Trudeau is very likely not going to be prime minister when the bulk of the money at the back end of the deal actually goes out the door. So it's interesting to see how these go, because it could be a pierre Polyev problem in the future about how to balance this increased federal money going to the provinces while probably in a Polyev government trying to balance the books at the same time.
0: Right. What are the financial assumptions like right now, though, Mackenzie, heading for the next year?
4: Well, that's going to be the big question here. You know, the, the federal government usually in these budgets, it, well, since the liberals have come in, have put in a, a they put in a variety of scenarios. So there's kind of a best case, a middle case, and a worst case scenario. And that's one of the things I'm always interested to look at. It's not just how the economy is going, but they put in things like the price of oil and the price of gold and things like that that impact the, how the federal government's, um, you know, uh, royalty payments and other things like that go. So that's always one of the key things that we'll look at today. Basically, they were projecting that we weren't going to go into a recession last time. I'm interested to see what they think at this point in time, but where the economy is going over the next 12 months.
0: Okay, and let's also talk about the increase in taxes here, because I got to tell you, there's a lot of people who are upset about this increase um, on beer and spirits and that tax coming into effect April 1st. Any chance that might change?
4: Well, it might change. Uh, You know, I think this is one of those emblematic things. It's it's the, the taxes tied to inflation. So, it's going to go up 6.3%. That doesn't mean that when you go to the liquor store, beer and spirits are going to be up 6.3%, just the excise tax on that. But that is a pretty substantial amount of the cost of alcohol in Canada. So, there's been a lot of calls from the Conservatives to say, look, don't increase the escalator on this. Just leave the excise tax where it is. Bars and restaurants got killed during the pandemic. Folks are having a tough time with inflation. They like to have a beer after work. Why are you going after regular Canadians? And the increase on that tax doesn't bring in that much more money for the federal government. So that could be an easy bone to throw, both to the Conservatives and to Canadians who might not necessarily think about voting for them to say, I'm actually understanding your concerns when it comes to inflation. Here's a little thing we can do that's not going to ruin the books for us, but also make life just a little bit more easier and show that they're actually understanding and caring about this issue.
0: Right. Okay. So we're keeping an eye on that one. And finally here, I mean, is this budget going to sail through? Is this going to be fine? Like, is the NDP going to support this budget?
4: I mean, there were two key things that Jagmeet Singh has been going on about for months. More money for healthcare. The prime minister struck a deal with the provinces and a plan for dental care. They really already laid that plan out in the last budget. I have a hard time thinking the liberals are going to be changing that plan on dental care, we already talked about the health care money that's out the door. But let's look at the political, the raw politics, the reality of the situation for Jagmeet Singh. He doesn't have enough money right now to run a proper election campaign. And even if he did, he's looking at the polls down at NDP headquarters thinking, I might actually lose seats if there's an election right now instead of gaining seats. There is no political upside for an election. Jagmeet Singh is going to walk out into the foyer of the House of Commons around 5 o'clock Eastern and say, you know what, I can support this budget. No way there's going to be an election after this one.
0: All right. Thanks for that, Mackenzie. Thanks a lot. Mackenzie Gray is our national reporter for Global News' Parliamentary Bureau, talking about today's upcoming budget to be announced by Finance Minister Krista Freeland. And we will have complete coverage of that for you uh, throughout the day today. And, of course, we'll talk all about the important stuff coming up tomorrow as well.
1: This is Mornings with Simi.
0: As we just heard from Mackenzie Gray, there will likely be some kind of grocery rebate measure in the federal budget, something to help Canadians. And there are so many of us out there who are struggling with the higher and higher prices that we find at the grocery stores these days. But here's the thing: will it be enough? Will it actually be able to help you put a dent in that grocery bill? And why do prices just continue to climb? Well, joining us now is Mike Von Massa, who's an associate professor of food, agriculture, and resource economics at the University of Guelph. Uh, Mike, thanks so much for joining us this morning. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Does it seem kind of inevitable that the government would have to do something given all the concerns about grocery store prices these days? Well,
5: you know, I think that the government was looking at ways to help Canadians, and frankly, this is probably the only avenue they have if they want to give people some relief from these high prices. So, you know, it's not surprising given parliamentary committees and all of that and, and the attention we've paid to generational price inflation that this is this is the path they're proposing.
0: Right, which is the, uh, the GST, increasing that GST rebate.
5: Well, yes. So it, it's essentially getting cash into the hands of people who need it. You know, I think I think uh, lower income Canadians, those on assistance and other uh, fixed income, fixed uh, pensions are probably bearing a disproportionate burden of these high costs. We're all feeling it, but but I think they're feeling a disproportionate burden. So so getting cash into the hands of Canadians uh, is a way of easing that. That budget pressure, even though there's not much GST on groceries, it's it's just a way of transferring cash directly through a mechanism that already exists.
0: Okay, then why do prices continue to go up? Because we've seen this problem, it's not just obviously in Canada, but elsewhere as well. Where is that pressure coming from?
5: Well, there are a variety of things that are happening. You know, usually when we're talking about price inflation a couple of years ago, you'll remember we talked about $10 cauliflower. We, we, oh, we yeah. have individual events that happen and cause individual items to go up. What we're seeing now is sort of this perfect storm of the war in Ukraine, extreme weather events across the world. Southern California North Africa, Southern Europe, um, Canadian dollar that's gone down because of interest rate policy, all of these sorts of things happening at the same time, which are giving us sort of a, a high rate of inflation across the board. It's, it's worth noting that some things have gone up more than others, you know, flour, bakery products, pasta, those sorts of things, up over 20%. Uh, but meat is up, which we which we all know and feel because it's expensive to start with, is is up in, quote unquote, only six percent. And in fact, pork is down in the last year. So there's there's there, there are all of these different things happening at the same time that are that are that are bringing sort of the perfect storm of pressure on food prices.
0: Right. Because it feels like we all notice it. Right. You go to the grocery store and you or we're getting shrinkflation. Things are getting smaller out there, too, aren't they? Mm-hmm
5: yes i think i think we 're seeing we 're seeing shrinkflation i think we 're seeing uh, you know we notice we 're much quicker to notice price increases than we are to notice price decreases and so when we see those big jumps and that they 're sustained, uh, we definitely feel it and and then we notice things like like you say packaging uh, not getting smaller, but maybe how much is in it getting smaller and other things uh, uh, happening to to try and At least create the illusion of relief from price pressure.
0: What is a price decrease, Mike? Because I have not seen one of those.
5: Well, there have been some in the grocery store, frankly. Uh, But, you know, and, uh, but again as we're hardwired to be more sensitive to the increases and frankly decreases come less quickly than than increases but you know lettuce is less expensive than it was in december because lettuce is now being produced in places where uh, they're not having the extreme weather event like they did in southern california so there have been some things frankly that've come down uh, but they're just they're just being overwhelmed by all of those other price increases.
0: This is obviously going to be a bit, a very tricky budget for the federal government given, you know, there's concerns about the economy, but you know, needing to mitigate our rising food costs. Is that something that is sustainable for the government to do in the long term? I mean, what have what have you heard if anything from the grocery store companies and all this testimony that we've had?
5: Well, th- th- nothing about the grocery store testimony surprised me. They they say they aren't driving food price inflation, and and to a significant degree, I I, I believe them that that in as much as uh, that they might be benefiting from from food price inflation, it's not the biggest thing, and 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 I'm not convinced they are anyway. I think this is a a you know this is this is some would argue what governments are here to do is when things are tough to help out uh there maybe a cynic would argue that this is getting a lot of attention and governments feel like politically they have to do whatever their motivation they're they're trying to ease the pressure particularly on lower income canadians how sustainable is it well I, i think you know the war in ukraine's not ending soon climate change is not ending soon but there is some hope and some optimism for some relief as we get into the summer months. So, you know, governments paid out a lot of money during, during COVID. Uh, you know, there isn't a bottomless pit of money. So it's probably not something that will stay forever. Uh, but, but it is something that can, can get us through these tough times in the short run, I would argue.
0: Where do you see those bits of relief potentially coming?
5: Well, I think as we get into Canadian production, we won't be paying for things in American dollars and we won't be shipping them quite as far. Um, you know, w- no one can predict what, what kind of summer, what kind of growing season we'll have. But usually in the summer we see uh, some seasonal reductions in food prices, particularly fresh fruits and vegetables. Um, but uh, so, so I think that there is some optimism there. You know, we've probably seen as much impact of the war in ukraine as we will we've seen some adjustments so perhaps we might not get a bunch of relief in that area but probably not a lot more price increase so i think uh, overall there is some room for optimism
0: all right we're going to take that mike thanks so much for your time this morning
5: Well, thanks for having me. Have a great day. You too.
0: That's Mike Von Messa, who's an Associate Professor of Food, Agricultural and Resource Economics at the University of Guelph. Talking about what sounds like some kind of grocery prices or grocery rebate coming our way in the federal budget to be announced by Finance Minister Krista Freeland today, likely in the form of a, a GST rebate so they can target exactly who gets this money. So as we heard from Mackenzie Gray earlier, likely about, you know, $400 or so, depending on how much, you know, money you make. Uh, will that be enough to put a dent in your grocery store price, in your grocery store bill? That's the question, right? If you want to weigh in, simi at cknw.com. I, there's certain things I've just, you know, kind of stopped buying or I look twice at, certainly with meat beef prices. Uh, you just, you look twice, right? You think twice before you buy stuff. This is Mornings with Simi. Despite all the efforts, we are still seeing a shockingly high number of overdoses in our province. In fact, in the city of Vancouver, fire rescue services say that on March 22nd, so just six days ago, they set a record for the number of overdose calls they responded to 45 in just one day fire crews say it is more than double what they usually see. And in fact, that day was bad right across the province where a record was set for overdose calls. And one of the additions, I guess, to this problem is the type of drug that is being used out there. It's called xylazine. It's actually normally prescribed for animals, for dogs, for cats, for horses, for cattle. And it is now known by street names. It is out there. And it is wreaking havoc on our streets. We're seeing this in the United States, too. And we want to learn more about this particular drug, why it has become so toxic out there. Dr. Chelsea Shever is with us now, an assistant professor in residence at the UCLA David Geffen School of Medicine. Dr. Shaver, thank you for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me. When did we first start seeing xylazine out there?
6: Yeah, so it's been prevalent in Puerto Rico for quite a while. Um, And then it showed up, you know, in the U.S., it really started showing up in Philadelphia um, around the late 2000s, early 2010s. And then over the last few years, it's spread to other drug markets, you know, including Vancouver, as you know. Um, So it is a fairly recent phenomenon in the last few years. Um, But, you know, it's been a veterinary medication for a very long time.
0: That's that's crazy that this is what people are using now. So what is so toxic about this particular drug?
6: Well, so the, the issue is, so basically xylazine is a central nervous system depressant. It's a sedative. Um, so it has similar effects to opioids in the sense that it slows, you know, slows down your nervous system, slows down your breathing. And the issue is when it's combined with opioids like fentanyl or heroin, um, those, it's possible for those two to have a synergistic effect. Um, or for xylazine on its own to really cause profound sedation, which is just someone is basically, you know, passed out. And so, yeah, those are kind of, you know, they're both having similar effects. And when they're together in the drug supply, it's concerning because opioids like fentanyl will respond to the overdose antidote medication naloxone, but xylazine, because it's not an opioid, won't. And so the concern is sort of, well, there's a few concerns. One is if someone has an overdose that involves xylazine, you need to. it's important to know that because the type of treatment you'll want to give is more like supportive care, giving oxygen, um, not just giving naloxone, which you should absolutely do because there's probably an opioid on board.
0: Right. Um, In addition is to the cost- xylazine, you're saying there probably is also an opioid.
6: Yes. 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 For, you know, at least... From our work, it's like 98% of the time xylosine is showing up with other drugs, and it's mostly fentanyl. And I think that's that's true in um, Canada, too, that we're mostly talking yeah. about dope, which is an opioid in xylosine.
0: So how do these drugs spread like this? Is it just because it is something new and people want to try something new? Like, what happens? Yeah, so I
6: think, you know, the main reason that... Um, You know, manufacturers or sellers started adding xylazine to heroin and then fentanyl is because it extends the length of the effects. Um, So, fentanyl in particular has a very short, it's a very short acting drug. And so, if you add xylazine, it makes the effects last longer. And so, that can mean someone doesn't have to use as often, um, someone can avoid withdrawal, things like that. Um, It gives it legs, as people will say. So, that's, you know, that's, Kind of the main reason it started being introduced, and um, now has become a major part of some drug markets, and then is just starting to emerge in others.
0: It's just like um, chemistry, right? Like they're just trying to mix things together. They're just—it's like playing roulette, Russian roulette.
6: Um. Yeah, I get. Yeah, right. I mean, every you know the motivations are the same as selling any other product, right? You want to make your product. Uh, work just as well uh for cheaper or for ways that improve it over someone else's product and so if you can make something that lasts longer or requires less of your main ingredient that's you know those are some of the types of motivations um the other really concerning thing about xylazine besides the sedation which is which which is a problem because if someone has used xylazine they're, they're liable to be just unresponsive kind of knocked out for Hours, which can put them at risk of assault or violence or theft, right? Because they're just not yeah. able to respond. Um, the other thing is these wounds that it, the abscesses it causes. Um, and that's that's true for people who inject drugs that have xylazine. but we're also starting to see evidence that the abscesses even form for people who are snorting or smoking it. Um, and these wounds can just be very difficult to heal and... Um, you know, are certainly painful and risk of
0: infection and all that. What is the withdrawal like to get off of this?
6: Yeah, I mean, there is, you know, there is a withdrawal um, syndrome. I guess that's, you know, that's something I'm a little bit less familiar with the specifics of how that's going to be different than opioid withdrawal. But the important thing is that, you know, when you're trying to come off both an opioid and xylosine, well, now you've got two drugs that you need to, Um, you know, two different withdrawal syndromes, I guess, that you need to deal with. So, um, you know, and and especially in some markets where xylosine has been introduced, like people don't necessarily, well, certainly people don't necessarily want it initially and maybe not, are maybe not as aware that it's there. And then if they're trying to come off of it, then it's suddenly like, oh my gosh, I have to come off of these two things at the same time. And that's harder.
0: Are we prepared? Like, are any of our healthcare systems... Uh, you know, prepared to deal with this constant change of drugs? Um. Well, that's a great question.
6: <laughs> um, you know, not, I, I would say most are not as prepared as we could be. You know, one challenge, and I, I work mostly in the United States, and so Canada does have a really robust drug checking program, especially Vancouver. Um. And so I think the information about what's in the illicit drug supply, Vancouver is probably you know, leading the world in terms of knowing, um, you know, with a reasonable degree of timeliness what's actually in it. And so knowing that is really important to making clinical decisions too. Um, as as, As far as health systems being ready, you know, one challenge we have here in the United States is, you know, a lot of newer drugs, including xylazine, just aren't routinely tested for, whether that's you know, some hospitals do it, some medical examiners do it, uh, but usually that's like after there's a problem. Like after you realize, like, oh, this is something we should be looking for, then um, places will start will start testing for it. Uh, but if we can, if we could have a more robust uh, way, you know, network of testing of testing like drugs that are seized during arrest, and also when someone dies of an overdose, doing the post toxicology includes that. And then also the kind of community-based drug checking, like Vancouver has a lot, and like other places are starting to get, all of those pieces of information can come together and let us know like, what's really going on in the illicit supply.
0: Right. Listen, thank you so much for this. I learned so much. Uh, thanks for your time. Okay, thanks for having me. Appreciate that. Dr. Chelsea Shover is an assistant professor in residence at the UCLA David Geffen School of Medicine talking about the drug xylazine. We are seeing more of it in BC, actually. In fact, according to Canada's Drug Analysis Service, the number of illicit drug samples containing xylazine jumped from 205 in 2019 to 2,324 in 2022. And here in BC, that's about 21% of those samples. That number actually here went up fourfold during that time too. So more, it's prevalent out there and it is deadly as well as we heard. A record number of overdoses on March 22nd, right across the province. This is Mornings with Simi. Let's talk about the impact of artificial intelligence on our society. It has revolutionized all aspects of it, right? Businesses, education, science, you name it. But what about politics? What would happen if the future of political decision-making were in the hands of Well, artificial intelligence, machines, rather than humans. Our producer, Bianca Rego, explored these implications with Jeff Hancock. Jeff is the Harry and Norman Chandler Professor of Communication at Stanford University and the founding director of the Stanford Social Media Lab. They were trying to find out what a brave, new, artificially intelligent world could look like. Have a listen.
7: So first of all, can you tell me how exactly does this type of artificial intelligence work?
8: Well, the main uh, value for it is it can take in a lot of information. And so even for a, a country the size of Romania, on social media, you're getting you know, hundreds of thousands of posts a day. And so you know, most humans can't uh, read that much. But an AI system that's designed to uh, take in a lot of that can actually ingest it all in a day and then summarize it to you know, give you a sense of what's going on. It's not clear how well it works, though.
7: Yeah, I was going to ask, so how is it able to sift through the influx of information it acquires? Like, is it programmed to pick and choose? Does it tell the president what he wants to hear? Or does it just simply provide suggestions based on the information it takes in?
8: Yeah, it's not clear exactly what model they're, they're running. But what it'll do is try to find themes or categories of content that's being produced on it. And then summarize that for the, you know, operator, whoever's using it.
7: What type of themes would it be looking for?
8: Well, I think it'd be similar to the kinds of themes that you see on Google or on Twitter, which are like, these are things that are trending right now. And so that's my understanding of where they're at, is they're going to be looking at things that are, these are being talked about a lot right now. So you could imagine for a political thing, it could be, hey, there's a lot of discussion about these floods, say if they're having some kind of a flood event, where it gets a little bit more sensitive and tricky is if it's like, hey, there's a bunch of people talking about our party or about the other party. And then it's like, is that being used for the politician or for the government?
7: Is it ethical for politicians to adopt this, like, Big Brother-esque type of online surveillance?
8: Yeah, it definitely has that feeling of surveillance and definitely some creep factor here. But at the same time, I think governments and, and certainly politicians and their political parties are using social media analytics all the time to try and understand you know, what messages are resonating, uh, what their constituents are, are raising and talking about. So you know, I think they're already doing this, they just haven't been using AI to do that. So that's the one difference, is instead of just using those tools to see what's going on, they're allowing the AI to do the summarizing and synthesizing for them. And so that's the one part that does remain ethically questionable.
7: That's actually a really good point that you raise. So we all know that our phones probably listen to us. Um, and there's a bunch of conspiracy <laughs> theories about whether or not uh, right. people are surveying our Google history to see whether or not we pose a threat. So, with that in mind, how does this differ?
8: Yeah, I think right now my understanding for most political campaigns is that they're using data from social media to understand um, their, you know, their constituents and potential voters. But what's happening is a human is looking at that data and making judgments about it. Here, with an AI advisor, it seems like the humans are being cut out of the loop and the AI is, you know, using the same kind of data looking at social media and then making recommendations to the minister. And so that's the part that seems fundamentally different. And that's the one where we're not super comfortable just because we don't really know what's going on there. Now, that said, you know, these systems over the last two months have blown us all away by what they can do. But they're often, you know, inaccurate and sometimes make stuff up.
7: On that note, based on the fact that it basically operates solely on data, there's no intrinsic bias that humans inherently have. So would you say that by eliminating the human aspect of this surveillance, would it actually make it a little more ethical?
8: Yeah, it would be lovely if that was the case. I mean, that would be the ideal. But unfortunately, the, the human bias gets baked in but the data that it's looking at. And so these systems are not only, you know, looking at human data, so there's bias in there, they're also trained on it. So to build these kinds of AI, they have to ingest billions and trillions of human-written words, often from Wikipedia or other internet-based sites. And so the the bias is sort of already baked in.
7: That's wild, especially since Wikipedia is clearly not a reliable source, um, as we know anyone can edit it. <laughs> So what would happen if this became a new political practice? How would this impact how countries are run?
8: Yeah, I think if we set aside the ethical questions for a bit and just said, OK, well, let's just assume that we could figure out an ethical way to do this. The answer, unfortunately, is it, it only will work if it's effective. So I think people will judge these tools based on how good they are. So if they can get uh, data and information from them that allow them either to be really responsive as a government to their constituents, or if it's more of a political campaign to get more votes, then those systems will be used. And if that's right, then the people with the best system are going to be the most likely to be elected and have the best government. And who's going to have the best system? Well, that'll be the people with the most money because you'll be buying these things. So one worry is it will lead to more uh, inequities. The rich get richer by having better AI, so to speak.
7: How will that impact the way that we communicate, especially with the leaders that we entrust with how our countries are governed by eliminating the human connection?
8: Uh, It's really hard to predict the future with AI. It's changing so fast, advancing so fast. But let me give you a couple of possible models for, for an outcome. One is it's a tool. The politicians and the government use it just like the many other information tools they have, and hopefully they do it in a way that is ethical and and improves lives of their constituents and voters. Another one is that it just completely revolutionizes the way that politicians and the government can understand their population and then also produce communication directed specifically at people. So if once you have AI, you dedicate it to very specific people, tailored for them so it's as persuasive as possible. There's a third one, which is the way we understand work is just totally wrong right now or for the future. And AI will be the interface between, say, politicians and constituents with very little, you know, human communication. So it's just really difficult to think of the future. I am a little bit nervous about what can happen because it's just much more difficult than usual to see the future.
7: Could AI replace politicians?
8: We're already seeing really interesting things. There's a guy on Twitter that partnered with ChatGPT and started a company. I'm going to give it $100, and I'll be its human interface with the world, so I'll just do whatever it tells me to do. He started that about five days ago, and he already has over $25,000 in a company started by this system, and he's sort of like calling it his boss. Could we see that in politics as well? You know, what happens? to how much we believe in democracy and in politicians. So there's just lots of risks here. You know, part of me is excited to see these tools being used in the real world, but another part of me is like, hey, should we slow down and maybe test some of these things first? But yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm a little worried about how this affects trust in people.
0: Yeah, that's what I always wonder too. Shouldn't we test some of this stuff first before we do it? That is Jeff Hancock, the Harry and Norman Chandler Professor of Communication at Stanford University, founding director of the Stanford Social Media Lab.
1: This is Mornings with Simi.
0: This afternoon, we will get the details on the 2023 federal budget from Finance Minister Krista Freeland. Now, you'll hear all those details right here on 980 CKNW because we know what the big questions are here, right? What can we expect? What will be in there that will impact you? What kind of pressure is the government facing these days with the economy kind of teetering, not quite sure which way it's going to go, but at the same time wanting to provide some relief to Canadians? Well, to break this all down for us, we're joined now by Moshe Lender, who's a senior lecturer of economics at Concordia University. Thank you so much for joining us. Hello. Can we talk a little bit about how how tricky, I guess, it's a bit of a tightrope the finance minister is walking right now, isn't it?
9: That's the great analogy. Uh, On the one hand, uh, Canadians are suffering from 40-year highs in inflation and are looking to the government to try and provide support. But if the government does provide that support, that itself is inflationary. And so uh, you you need to show that you're concerned about the uh, situation that Canadians find themselves in but not contributing to the problem Unfortunately, doing nothing, uh, which would be the correct thing to avoid creating the problem, seems heartless.
0: Yeah, I guess we've learned that lesson now, though, haven't we, Moshe? When you consider three years ago during the pandemic, there was a lot of support. But now we've seen what happens when we do that.
9: Yeah, you know, I think it's one of those old ideas that uh, when governments spend a lot of money, it does create inflation. Uh, You know, the problem is that governments around the world were contributing to that problem. And then when you add in all of the global events that have conspired uh, since COVID, uh, you know, that's not helping things either. And again, that's something that government spending is not going to fix, right? You, You can spend as much as you want. It's not going to solve Russia's invasion of Ukraine, and it's not going to fix supply chain issues. So, uh, again, for the government to put its hands in its pockets and just shrug and say, you know, c'est la vie, (laughs) uh, you can't really do that. But if you do something, you realize that you're not really fixing the problems, but Canadians expect you to.
0: So what do you think is going to happen then today? What kind of line do you think the government's going to walk here?
9: So the government has a... Obligation to fulfill some of the demands of the NDP because the NDP is propping up this government uh, for the next couple of years. And so we're probably going to see an expansion of the dental plan uh, for children. That was one of the commitments that the Liberals made to the NDP. So they'll expand out that program a little bit. Uh, Canadians will recall that uh, GST credits uh, were increased uh, about six months ago. That's going to happen again, but this time it's going to be portrayed as a way to help Canadians with Uh, their grocery bills. So we'll we'll see some of that as well. Uh, We're going to see a lot of commitment to green uh, energy. U.S. has passed this legislation that is scaring a lot of countries that if they don't start moving towards trying to take the environment more responsibly and and promote green energy, uh, they're going to get themselves shut out of the American market. And so uh, the Liberals have long said that they believe in the environment. but They very uh, often showed little regard when it comes to budgetary matters. I think they're going to to commit to that. And then I think what we're going to see is this uh, idea that if there's a recession, if things go south in the economy, then the government will review what needs to be done at a later point. Uh, But for now, their commitment is merely to stand by at the ready if that's necessary.
0: Okay, so there might be some hedging of bets, I guess.
9: Yeah, you know, part of it is just you don't want to create the self-fulfilling prophecy. If the finance minister comes out and starts, you know, oh, my gosh, we're in a recession. How terrible. Well, you know, people start behaving then like they're in a recession. And that makes the recession likelier, deeper, longer. So you don't want to necessarily say we're not in a recession because that might not be true. So you just say that, look, if it happens, we're here and we're ready. There's a, a, an interim budget update that comes in November, and if we need to, we'll do whatever's necessary. Uh, but, you know, inflation has been coming down. The Bank of Canada says that it should be back to its normal 1% to 3% in the next six months. So the government might say that, look, that particular aspect uh, is coming to a close on its own. You don't need our help at this point other than to just get you through the next six months. That doesn't require a huge amount of spending then.
0: Right. Moshe, from what you have seen then with the state of the Canadian economy, is it precarious? Like, could it really go either way at this point?
9: So I'm going to be the rare economist that's actually optimistic about things. Oh, nice. And okay. I'm going to say that, yeah, I'm going, to, I'm going to say, you know, the, the word that we keep hearing is the Canadian economy is resilient. We're actually doing a lot better than uh, other large economies. We're certainly doing better than the U.S. Uh, growth has slowed. That's unfortunate. Uh, But even if we somehow tip into a recession, this isn't going to be your parents or grandparents style recession, right? We're not going to see this big drop in GDP and this huge jump in unemployment. Uh, It's probably not going to have a very large effect over the Canadian economy because, you know, a few months ago we were talking about how many businesses had, uh, you know, help wanted signs in the store window and they just couldn't find anybody. Uh, the likeliest outcome then is that if the economy does slow down further, they're just going to take those signs away and stick with the workers that they have. Well, the good news is employment is at record highs. It's even at pre-pandemic record highs. So the, the fact is that the economy is in a very strong position if there are job losses along the way. It's not going to be significant because I don't think firms want to get rid of workers and then have to try and find them after a mild recession is done in three months, six months.
0: Okay, so, Moshe, given that you are like an economist and you've studied, obviously, economics throughout history, has there ever been a time similar to what we're seeing right now or are we in a unique situation here?
9: Yes and no. Every, every economic slowdown has certain characteristics that are similar, but certain characteristics that are different. I'd say that if we're looking for maybe some sort of analogy, in the 1970s, we experienced something called stagflation. And that was an economy that was slowing down and tipping into a recession at the same time that prices were rising rapidly. I think that probably describes what we have right now. Uh, then, as opposed to now, the economy was hugely reliant on oil, uh, as an engine of the economy, pun intended. Um, we still obviously are very reliant on oil and gas, uh, but not nearly to the extent uh, given how much of our economy has grown and how much we've seen the emergence of clean technology. So uh, the, the way that we solved the problem in the 1970s was really bad and probably set the seeds for the recession that came uh, you know, five, six years after that. Uh, I, I think that we're much smarter now that if we do experience a recession, we actually have room now to lower interest rates since they grow so rapidly uh, and inflation is coming down and we have these long supply chains that we're reinvestigating and looking for maybe diversifying our suppliers to, to make sure that these types of shocks don't happen. So, uh, there is an analogy, but I, I don't know that it's a perfect one.
0: Right. I, I really feel like people have learned a lot, though, about this, right? It's There were demands for the government to start spending more. They did, and now everybody realized, oh, wait, that there's consequences to that. So do we all understand, do you think, the levers of economics a little bit better?
9: We do until the next check arrives, right? right? So that's one of those amazing <laughs> things that whenever everybody gets, you know, the $400 check, $500 check from the provincial government, uh, we we happily look at our bank account and say, so when does the next one come? So we're, we're as well-trained uh, as the current environment demands. Uh, but of course, if circumstances change, we quickly update what we expect out of our government. So I, I think that if they send a clear message today that we stand ready, but we're not going to do what you expect today, uh, then I think Canadians should understand that, oh, okay, we'll, we'll talk in six months and see what happens then.
0: All right. Well, Moshe, thank you so much for your time on that today.
9: Anytime.